Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, if you are new to our church, my name is Dave. It is my privilege to serve here as lead pastor. And um, we've been working our way through a series on the Gospel of John. And this is a message, um, a passage that I was really looking forward to. And then I began my study this week, and I was just overwhelmed. I don't, I don't think I'm going to be able to share even a fraction of of the good stuff that is just in this very rich prayer of Jesus. I'm going to make an attempt to highlight a few things that I think are really important for us to hear from this prayer. And I want to start with this. The title, by the way, the title of the message is The Prayer of Jesus. And you'll understand in a second why I called it that. Back in the year 2000, um, did I lose something here? Thanks. Um, Back in the year 2000, a man named Bruce Wilkinson released a book called The Prayer of Jabez. Any of you guys remember this book? Some of you read it. And so I'm not going to share uh, my personal feelings about the book. But it was a little book, tiny thing, 62 pages. That's like a bathroom read if you're a fast reader. And it was based entirely on two obscure verses buried in a long genealogy record of Israel from 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verses 9 to 10, here are the verses. It says, There was a man named Jabez who was more honorable than any of his brothers. His mother named him Jabez, which means affliction in Hebrew, because his birth had been so painful. He was the one who prayed to the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and expand my territory. Please be with me in all that I do, and keep me from all trouble and pain. And God granted him his request. It's not the worst prayer in the world. I mean, you can see why that book went on to sell more than 9 million copies. I think that's a prayer that just about every American Christian would like to lift up and hear answered, right? I mean, that's the kind of prayer that is in a lot of our hearts. I would love for my territory to expand, for God to bless me and be with me in everything I do, and along the way, just to keep all pain and trouble away from me. And so that book and that prayer took the nation by storm. It led to at least, uh, at least a half dozen derivative books, a line of jewelry and merchandise. People just loved the prayer of Jabez. A little less known, I think, is the prayer of Jesus. Now, the New Testament records that Jesus prayed a lot. It often says he retreated away to pray, but no one with a microphone or a tape recorder eavesdropped on the prayer. So we don't have a whole lot of Jesus' prayers actually recorded for us word for word. There are a few. One of the most famous prayers that Jesus taught is called the Lord's Prayer. You guys know the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, it should really be renamed the Disciples' Prayer because it wasn't so much a prayer of Jesus as his attempt to teach us as disciples how to pray to God. He was teaching us to pray, so I I really wish we would just rename it 
the disciples' prayer rather than the Lord's prayer. But this, John chapter 17, records, in fact, an actual prayer of Jesus, and it's the longest prayer of Jesus recorded in Scripture. And it takes place at the at a very critical time in Jesus' life and gives us a very important window into the heart of Jesus. You learn a lot about a person when you eavesdrop on their prayers. Now, I'm not saying eavesdrop, like be sneaky. You shouldn't do that to people. But when you hear another person pray to God out of their own heart, choosing their own words, you learn quite a lot about them. I think even that if a family prays together, if a couple prays together, you draw closer because you see something about the depths of that person's heart when you hear them pray. So in this prayer, and this is a prayer with which Jesus ended what is often known as the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse. Discourse really just means extended teaching, uh, an address, if you will. And this is the, the last teaching Jesus gave over a dinner table to his closest friends and followers. He knew that his time on the earth was coming to a close, that he was about to face the horror of crucifixion, and that soon he would be taken up to heaven and no longer be with them. You know that feeling when someone you care about, you're you're either going to see them leave or you're going to leave them. You know the heaviness of that. Even if a great adventure awaits for either party, the, the sorrow of parting brings a heaviness, a seriousness to every conversation that takes place towards the end, doesn't it? And I'm just thinking about some of the people that I really care about with whom a chapter in my life with them is closing, and I think about the weight that puts on my heart and how every conversation takes on a different sort of significance, uh, uh, a, a special meaning, especially if you know you might not see them much more in the near future. So Jesus gives this powerful teaching in that upper room, and then he brings that teaching to a close with this prayer recorded in John 17. I'm going to just tell you right now, there is no way this message is going to even dent what that prayer contains. So I'm going to just give you a few glancing blows, but I would like to start by reading that entire prayer for you from the beginning to the end. And as, we, as I read this, here's how I want you to do it. Instead of looking at the screen... I know some of you are visual learners, but I'm going to ask you if you will actually close your eyes and hear it as a prayer being offered, and and hear a picture that is the voice of Jesus praying this with and in front of his closest friends. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed to you, to those whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. (laughs) 
I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. Amen. Please open your eyes, wake up, whichever is the case. Before I dive into a few key points from this prayer, I want to make a a few short general remarks about this prayer. The first is that this is prayer driven by love. It's remarkable to me that Jesus is on the eve of or on the cusp of his crucifixion, a horrific event. If you've ever had a bad day coming, looming over your head, a certainty that was headed for you and you couldn't avoid it, you know what that feels like and how it obsesses you, how it defines everything you pray about. When you have a dread hanging over you in the future, what do you find yourself praying? What I find so remarkable is that even at that point in his life, Jesus is praying a prayer that expresses his deepest love for God, his Father, and then for people. Later on in the garden, he's going to pray for his own heart. That's not something we're supposed to avoid. You're not supposed to be so selfless that you disappear. But it's okay to pray for your own agony, your own struggle. But it's remarkable that in this amazing prayer, so much of it is not for himself, but for those he loves. 
his father, and all his people. And the second is this. Because of what Jesus says in verse 20, that he's not just praying for his immediate disciples, the 12, really the 11 plus the, the one who would betray him. He's praying for them right now because he is about to physically leave them. But in verse 20, he says, I'm not just praying for them. They're not the only ones I have in mind as I pray this. I'm thinking of all those who will hear their message and join them, become part of that same family because of their message. I think that appropriately extends to us. That it's not just a prayer for the 12, but it's also a prayer that can be extended to us. And it's about us. We're caught up in the things that Jesus prayed. And so I'm going to approach the prayer that way, that it's not just for the 12, but it is also meant for us. I want to point out several things that Jesus prays for on our behalf. And the first is that Jesus prays for our protection. Now, some of you are very security-minded, and protection is a very important word to you. You only need protection if there's threat or if there's opposition. And the truth is, there really is a lot of opposition. Jesus knew that he would be leaving them soon. He says, I'm going to be in the world no longer, but they're going to have to stay. There are days when I wish I could just be done here and be with God and all the drama, all the mess of this place would be left behind. I'm not saying that I want to end my own life. I'm saying there are days when I long for the next world, not this one. That this world sometimes wearies me. And he knew that we would have to stay behind and he would go back to his father. And when he was with them, he protected them. He kept them safe. You know that feeling when there are threats all around you, but someone mightier than you is near you, and you just sort of follow along on their coattails? It's a comforting feeling. It produces a lot of security. And he knew that he was going to withdraw that protection, and so he cries out to his father, please watch over them. You know what this emotionally reminds me of is every parent who's ever dropped off their child at college for the first day. And you're looking at that forlorn kid who's so excited and giddy, and you're like, oh, Lord, I can't do it. And you're watching them disappear and shrink in your rearview mirror. Uh, Some of you should not operate a vehicle in that condition. Some of you just need to hire a driver. You're not going to make it, okay? It is a, a hollow feeling because you love them, and all their life, you stepped in, you watched out for them. Even in the nagging, it was because you loved them. You were trying so hard to protect them and guide them towards a different, better life. But there comes a point where you can't be there. And your heart's cry is, I can't be there, but God, please be there with them, for them. Watch over them. Protect them. He makes it very clear that he's not asking them to be withdrawn from the world. They have to be there because they're called to the world. But he knows that they have an enemy who will not relent in his opposition. They need protection because there's an There's an adversary who is after them and wants to undo the work of God in their lives. And that applies also to us. You know, we have a lot of struggle, and most often we blame our struggles on other human beings, which is in part very true, but so often we forget that we have an enemy whose constant agenda is to sow division, enmity, conflict in the world. God's agenda is always reconciliation, healing, 
unity. That's what he's after. And every time we see that work threatened or undone in a marriage, in a family, in a friendship, in a workplace, in a neighborhood, even in a nation, every time we see that unity, that that peace, that harmony disrupted, it is not the work of God. It's always at the heart the agenda of the enemy, whether he's directly responsible or we're cooperating with him, he delights every time human things break apart and people are at each other's throats. He knew that often the enemy would do a full frontal assault. Those are not as hard to resist because you can see them coming. But the harder attack to resist, whether it's in the military or in spiritual warfare, is the sneak attack that comes from the flank. The one that gets you Not where you're looking, but from behind. Guards on the parapet of a secure castle wall always look out of the castle at the enemy outside the gates. But some of the greatest um, turnaround victories in military history happened when someone climbed a wall or burrowed under a tunnel and attacked from behind those guards on the wall. I think what Jesus is indicating here is that one of the great ways that the enemy would continue to attack his disciples when he was gone, is through the opposition of others. Earlier, um, <coughs> excuse me, earlier, uh, and by the way, notice these words, several times he repeats this, they are not of this world. Here's what he's saying. They used to be of this world. We all were. We were all cut from the same cloth as everybody else. None of us was born Christian. None of us was born aware of knowing God, trusting him for anything. We were all born in our sin, rebellious against God, in love with ourselves, willing to hurt anybody for any reason if we could gain. That was the heart of humanity that we were born with. Over time, by God's grace, he revealed himself to many of us, and we learned to love him, to trust him, and he began to change our very hearts. But that's not how we all started. So while we were of the world... We are no longer of it because he called us out of the world through the work that he would do on the cross. He called out of the world a people for himself so that it's not like one giant amorphous blob of humanity, but it's a distinct binary case. There are those who are gods and those who are not. Those who have received, accepted, trusted God and those who have rejected him or ignored him or neglected him or simply are in ignorance of him. That is the way you divide humanity. Those who are gods and those who are not. The language in scripture is often used as the church and the world. The people of God and the people not of God. And one of the ways that the enemy would, would attack the church would be to use our not of the world, our otherness, against us. Earlier in, in the discourse... In John 15, verses 18 to 19, Jesus said it very pointedly. If the world hates you, and that's not really, it's a rhetorical if. The world's going to hate you. If you speak up in the things of conscience and faith and conviction that you truly believe, eventually people will tire of your voice. They will be deeply offended by the things you say, even though you truly believe them in your heart. They are not fashionable today. They can be reframed as hate language. I'm not saying we should be bigoted. I'm not saying we should be off-putting and annoying and obnoxious. But even when you simply state what you truly believe by conscience, 
eventually someone somewhere will hate you for it. And that's the natural course of things because when you are truly not of, eventually that not of one another begins to cause division between you and those to whom you don't actually belong. And he says, if the world hates you, really it should say when the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. But you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. And that being called out of the world, that being distinct in some profound way, other, wholly different than the rest of the world, that is a thing that creates, at one point, I guess in large part it depends on who the majority is, who enjoys cultural dominance. Because Jesus predicts that they would be rejected by the world, and that's a little hard for us to fully identify with because we are at the tail end of a long period in the United States where the church and Christianity enjoyed cultural dominance. Would you agree? Yeah? Are you still awake? Our founding fathers were, were called, called us a Christian nation. Our constitution is built on the platform, the chassis of the Ten Commandments. Our whole judicial system basically is about moral righteousness as defined by Scripture. I'm not hearkening back to those good old days and saying that's what I want. I'm saying that's what we've enjoyed is the church has always been the majority in the U.S. For a long period in the early part of our history, to be a pastor was not a thing of shame that no girl wanted. To, every girl in the village wanted to marry the pastor. He was the smartest dude, the richest dude, whatever. Do you understand? That was Times were very different. Very different. The point is, There was a time when the we felt like a powerful, united voice. There was a we, and we all believed the same stuff, so to declare it to be other than the world was comforting because that attached you to the dominating group. I remember watching a guy at Soldier Field with a Dallas Cowboys jersey in the midst of a drunken section of season ticket-holding Bears fans and actually being afraid for this man's life. He was so obnoxiously rooting for the Cowboys when they started beating the Bears on our home turf. And I thought he was going to die that day. You know, when you are part of the home team and everyone around you is cheering for the same guys, it's comforting to be different. But when you're standing against the crowd, it takes tremendous courage and resolve to hang on to your otherness when you're not in the majority. And when the world begins, and by the way, we are full on in that season today. Okay? We're no longer enjoying cultural dominance. And maybe some of us see that as a necessary correction. Because when anyone is in the dominant position, it's easy to fall asleep at the wheel, to be presumptuous and hard-hearted and unloving and ungracious. And I think the church has been all those things to a lot of people for a very long time. We need to give an account for ourselves A lot of outstanding debts are owed. We do have to have a posture of humility and repentance toward a world we have not loved as well as we ought to have. That is for sure. But the triumphalism of the church's dominance in America is ending. It's coming to a close. I'm not saying that to be doom and gloom. I'm saying maybe that's the best thing for the church, is not to sit on our throne and say, we rule the show. Because when we rule the show, I'm not sure we always ruled well in the spirit of God. 
You'll find throughout the world that where the church is most embattled, it is often the fiercest and purest and most motivated. In places of the hardest persecution, the true church often begins to rise because it's costly to love Jesus and it's so rewarding to love Jesus in a place like that. In the face of the world's rejection, one of the great temptations for us will be to quickly build bridges back to the world, not so much because we want to reach the world and bring them to Jesus, but because we want to bring the world back to us. Don't hate us. Don't look down on us. Don't think of us as provincial and backwards. Don't laugh at our beliefs. We want you to like us again. We want to feel like the weirdos in school, the one no one wants to sit at in the high school cafeteria with us. Some of you may remember those days when lunchtime in high school was the worst time because you were the only guy who kept wandering like a nomad. Can I sit with you guys? Oh, no, all right, cool. Can I sit with you guys? No, sorry, cool. And you basically just stood up and just ate from your tray because you didn't belong anywhere. And in the face of that kind of rejection and isolation, one of the great temptations is to say, please like us again. Please accept us back. We're not so weird. We're actually kind of cool. We care about you and all that. We're still speaking from the position of dominance with nostalgia, wanting to be received back. But sometimes, listen, our otherness, our being not of the world, is not a problem to overcome. It is precisely the means by which God will send us into and reach the world. I'm not saying otherness meaning weirdness, like act different from everybody in profound and obnoxious ways. I mean that we are truly binary, different, of another kind. We belong to a different kingdom, and that otherness is so often erased in the name of relevance and community with a small c, with air quotes, community which is kumbaya without any real power. That is not what God is after. Our otherness matters to him are being called out. That's, in fact, what the church, ecclesia, is. The word church, ecclesia in Greek, actually means called out. If there is no discernible difference between the church and the world, the church ceases to serve the kingdom of God in that world. It simply becomes a part of it. I'm not speaking about social engagement. Don't hear me the wrong way. I'm not saying, ew, let's be in our, our little enclaves and... Wear strange hats and all that. I mean be there in the world, just like Jesus acknowledges, but acknowledge somewhere in the depths of us, we are not of this place. It's not where we will finish our days. We are of another kingdom. We belong to another king, and that is of absolute importance. In June of 2017, I attended a lecture given by a professor, a theologian who normally um, I would not have read, I was given warnings about him by people when I was in seminary. I, I just really dislike the whole theological camp kind of. I think it's important to read everybody just to hear all the different viewpoints and invite the Holy Spirit to guide you to what is really true. It's risky, but I think it's important. <laughs> and I attended a, a lecture by a man named Stanley Hauerwas. He was for a long time a professor at Duke Divinity School. And he, was, he would often be characterized as someone from the evangelical left, okay? He made a statement that really got my attention in that lecture. He was responding to someone's question, and he just said, Hey, look, the first job of the church is to make the world the world. 
Like, what does that mean? But it wouldn't leave. It's like a virus burrowed in my head. I go, okay, that sounds really important. It's, it feels like a dawning of something important, but I want to know more. So I found his book in good company. And here's the full excerpt. The first task of the church is not to make the world more just, but to make the world the world. For the world can only know that it is the world through its contrast with the church that rightly knows the joy of worshiping the true God. You know, we speak so much of getting out there, being among the people, but the part of the guidance I think is lacking in the church today is when you're out there among the people, in what context, under what orders are you out there? Mixing it up, engaging, loving, acting, practicing, all that stuff. It is as one who is profoundly other so that when the Bible speaks of, when God looks at the world and says, there is my people and not my people, the not my people, through contrast with those who are his people, begin to understand we are different. It isn't just a whole world of people. There are two classes of people, two groups, and we are part of one distinct group, and those people over there clearly are of a different sort. It is not as we do different practices or just have different beliefs, but as we truly worship, delight, and rejoice over a Savior who makes us wholly different than the rest of the world. In that difference, that otherness, we become a useful message to the world. That's when we become salt. It is not just through our good works that we are salt. Too often I hear, be the salt and the light as give a cup of cold water, a piece of bread, serve. Felt needs are important. We have to be doing those things. But that is not the extent of our witness to the world is our kindness, our goodness, our considerateness, our generosity. The greatest gift that we have to the world is our celebrating and rejoicing in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, our Savior, living out of that joy and worshiping him for it. Hardly able to believe that the God of the universe knows our name, loves us, would sacrifice everything for us. That joy, that pure worship, that is our gift to the world. It is how we let the world know that they Missing, they're missing something which drives our lives, which creates real joy and renewal. Our change, our generosity and kindness is all driven by this very thing, that Jesus has made us different. We're not a slight variation on the theme of the world. We are another song altogether, a new song. Are you with me? I can't read your faces today. I don't know what's going on out there, so I'm going to just in faith continue. All right. Before I run out of time, let me move on. Jesus then prays also for our unity. This is so important. In verses 20 to 23, it is clear in the language that our being one really matters to Jesus. One of the great comforts that his disciples would have after he was taken up to heaven is that their savior, their master, is no longer with them, and they took such great comfort in walking around with him. His presence brought security, and as he left them, they would just have each other. It's the thing that I think every parent at some point has said to their kids, if they have more than one kid, they say to their children, please be better to each other. For the love of God, treat each other better than that. Why? Because someday we're going to be gone. I think I've said this to my kids a lot. Have, have I said it to you guys? 
Please be nicer to each other, love each other, because someday mom and dad are going to be dead, and then you guys, you're all the family you're going to have left. You have to treat each other well. And why is that so urgent? Because I'm going to be gone. What do I care? It matters because I love my children, and I want them to know the joy and the comfort and the peace of family, how that transcends every other relationship. And I want them to know it because I can't always be there to tie the family together. Someday, I, as the bonding agent, the glue will be removed, and they'll have just each other. And my heart's yearning is when it's just them, they still feel the the joy, the blessing of that bond, which I tried to produce for them when we were all together. Now, that's just a human analogy. It's not the lesson itself. What Jesus is saying is when I was with them, We were together as a group because they knew to rally to me. Soon I'm going to be gone. Father, keep them together because you're going to be still in a world that will be increasingly hostile and other than who they are and they are going to need the comfort of knowing that they have an us. They are not just the them. If you're an ethnic minority uh, and if you lived as an ethnic minority, and I, I don't mean just non-whites, many white people who travel to other parts of the world experience right away what it's like to be an ethnic minority. I think that's something every one of us at some point will feel in a setting. In fact, in this church, the ethnic majority is the ethnic minority. So I, I think we're, we're, we can all speak to each other out of a place of understanding. If you've been that minority, you know what it feels like to always be the other, the them. And then suddenly, how joyful it is to realize, no, I've become part of the us. There is an us, even though I am usually a them. Does that make sense to you? Yeah? I really cannot see what is happening in this room right now. I'm trusting that the Lord is blessing you somehow. And so our unity matters because Jesus has left us firmly rooted in a world to which we don't belong. A world into which we are sent in our otherness. We're going to need the sameness of one another to hold our hearts together. There's a lot of things that Christians try to build unity around. Often it's a common work, a common cause, a buzzword or rally cry like community, reconciliation, Mission, generosity, a lot of good rally cries. None of those things are bad things. They're actually exceedingly good things. But any community, any true unity that we attempt to build on those things is paper thin. Because those things rely on our goodness and our cooperation, our participation to sustain them. What Jesus says as he prays for our unity is he keeps mixing these two themes. You, just as you and I are one, I want them to be one. Just as you gave me glory and I gave you glory, just as I loved you and you loved me, let, let what we have, God, my Father, be what they have with each other. In other words, the only reliable and lasting source of human unity is when the love that God the Father has for God the Son, that deep, rich, pure love is then spilled over to us, and in the work of Jesus Christ, we experience, we understand, we receive the great love of Jesus. In that love, everyone who shares that experience and that love will be bound to us through that common thread. 
Every unity needs a binding agent. You can't just glue a bunch of things together without glue. You need something that holds it all together. And we tried. Have you ever been frustrated trying to fix something with super glue? You know that guy who, who puts his construction hard hat on and crazy glues it, and then he's hanging from the 20th story of a building? That's, that's got to be rigged because crazy glue can't fix half the stuff I try to fix with it. A week later, it cracks apart like cheap plastic. <clears throat> then I discovered something called, I think it's called e, E2000 or E6. You guys know what this is? a crazy adhesive. It's not quite an epoxy, but man, you can hold some stuff together with this strange goop. So you need something strong enough to hold together things that constantly want in their nature to be driven apart. If you've ever held two opposing magnets to, uh, together, you know, the, the, the positive against positive and wants to repel, you need a lot of force and a lot of skill to hold those two things together. That force is so powerful, you could actually levitate a train on that opposing magnetic force. We need someone and something strong enough to hold us together because our nature drives us apart and our enemy drives us apart and our context drives us apart. We will never run out of reasons to be annoyed with each other, to be sick of each other, whether it's family, friendship, company, church. Everywhere you go, you're like, well, I got to go find a new company, a new church, a new friend because you think the problem is they stink. I got to trade in. The problem is just people. There's nothing in us strong enough to hold us together because everything in our nature and in our environment drives us apart from each other. That's nature. That's the world that we live in. It's broken. And it breaks things. But Jesus, his gospel, his saving work, free of prejudice, free of bigotry, loving and gracious, draws together men, women, children of every age group, every geography, every time period in history, every ethnicity, every gender, every persuasion, every history. It's amazing how different the people are who belong to Jesus. All found their way to God through one Savior. He is the binding agent that transcends every other force in the universe that can hold people together. That's what Jesus is talking about here. When he prays for our unity, it's not just for a feel-good kumbaya, let's wave the same flag and be part of the same group. That kind of feeling fades eventually. The real unity he's speaking of is when we are profoundly moved by our shared salvation. We see in Jesus the greatest love God has ever displayed to the universe. He says that the same love that God the Father has given the Son is now in us. That's mind-blowing. That means that God loves us in Christ with the same love and ferocity with which he loved his own Son. There are some of you I know who, if Jeannie and I were to have crashed into the ocean on our way back from Asia this past spring you would have taken our children and loved them as your own. I'm very confident that many of you would have been willing to do that. And that's a tremendous comfort, that that deep, deep belonging of a shared love like that. That is what holds people together. It's a love that transcends our affection or affinity for each other. It is the love of God. 
And apart from the love of God, everyone you're with, you will grow sick of and be repelled from. Just give it enough time. Trust me. If you're really jazzed on our church, you love our church, you're pretty new. Okay? I'm just going to tell you that right now. Give it 10 years, you'll be like, oh, I don't know how much more of this man I could take. I don't know these people. And then you visit another church on vacation. They're like, oh, sing in. Woo! And you're like, yeah. We never do that at Harvest. So you go to that church, and after the 18th week of jumping, you're like, Come, I just want to be quiet again. It's just how we are. Give it enough time. You'll get sick of everything, everywhere, everyone. Unless there is a profound love greater than your affinity, greater than your affection that holds you to one another. The attempts to build unity without God is the folly, the foolish, failed experiment of the Tower of Babel. That's all I'm going to say about that. It doesn't work to be joined together apart from God. It falls apart. Jesus prays for our joy. I'll end with this, and I'll only touch on this briefly. Jesus says in verse 13, I am coming to you now. (laughs) How is he going to come to the Father? He's got to pass through a pretty bad day first. It's not like, I'm coming, get on a plane, just I'm boarded. Every time I travel, that's what I do. I I give Jeannie the play-by-play in the the terminal, waiting to board, on the plane, waiting soon. Uh, They're going to make me go into airplane mode soon. See you, bye, track my flight, pick me up. And so play-by-play, I'm getting to, all I'm doing to get from where I am to where she is, is sitting in a chair and watching movies. That's not the way Jesus was going to get to the Father. He was going to get to the Father through the hell of a day. The worst day ever. You think you've had bad days, look at your Savior and you'll know he has endured the worst of bad days because he loved us. And he says, in the face of that horrible day that was coming, what I really want is that they would have the full measure of my joy within them. What you talking about, Willis? How many of you guys are old enough to remember? (laughs) What you talking about? Younger guys are like, what is he doing? (laughs) That's that's Arnold from... Anyway. (laughs) That word and that situation don't go together. You don't look ahead at the worst day of your existence and think about joy. And yet, strangely, that's a word Jesus pulls out at that moment. How could he be talking about, and by the way, very soon afterward, he would be in a garden with his closest inner circle, and he'd be praying, and they would be sleeping, he would be praying, and he was praying in agony. I don't know if I can handle this, God, please, if there's any other way. But in the end, he yields to the Father. He was wrestling through, struggling through, so it wasn't all happiness, It wasn't giddiness, but there was a real joy that drove him to the cross. The writer of Hebrews makes that clear. Such a weird sentence. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I want to end by sharing how joy is part of the whole idea of the suffering of the cross. And how when Jesus prays that we would have the full measure of his joy, it's not the joy of, man, isn't my life awesome? Doesn't God answer all my prayers? 
maybe, maybe it's like this, and I don't want to be ungenerous, uncourteous, but maybe it's like this. Our joy comes when the prayer of Jabez gets answered. <laughs> My territory is expanded, and God is with me everywhere, and all the trouble and pain are just bouncing off me like I'm Superman, and they're bullets. No. The real joy Jesus is talking about is still fully experienced in the face of the looming cross. Here's two things I think he means by that joy. One is he had joy because he had anticipation over how happy his father was going to be when he obeyed him. Some of us have a very difficult relationship with our father, so delighting our human fathers is not something that's strongly motivating. We don't want to do things for a human father who failed us, disappointed us. It's hard to do that. I had an awesome human father. It's hard for me to describe in words how deeply I love and respect my dad. And I'm going to get a chance soon to express that because after nearly 55 years, I think, in medical practice, my dad's going to retire this May. Probably to the relief of some patients because I think he is getting up there in years. But he's going to stop doing medicine and he's going to rest finally. So in May, my brother and I were meeting tomorrow to plan my dad's retirement party. And I am giddy with anticipation. I'm super excited about this brunch I'm going to have with my brother tomorrow because I cannot wait to put together a really awesome, meaningful party that will celebrate my dad because he has meant so much to me. I have benefited so much from his life that I cannot wait to see his face, his smile, his tears when all the people he cared about surround him and pour love onto him and acknowledge what he's been to us and what he's done for us. I can't wait for that. That joy, even though my brother and I have already established with my mom, we're going to pay for this party. That's not the joy. (laughs) I promise you. That $1,000 credit card bill will not be the joy. The joy is in knowing that I will delight the heart of my father, whom I love. That was a big part of what drove Jesus to the cross. It wasn't just his love for us, though we'd like to imagine we were first and foremost. You know that one song, <clears throat> like, like a rose, you know that one, right? I, I wish we would stop singing that song, actually, because I, I don't know if I agree with it. It says, you took the cross and thought of me above all. I don't think that's really right. He did think of us a lot. It was a huge part of why he went to the cross. I love how D.A. Carson puts it. I couldn't put it better myself, so I'll just read it. When Jesus found himself in agony, in an agony in Gethsemane, he did not finally resolve to go through with the pain of plan of redemption by saying, this is awful, but I love those sinners so much, I'll go to the cross for them. But he said, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, the dominating motive that drove him onward to perfect obedience was his resolution out of his love for his father to be at one with the father's will. Though we poor sinners are unfathomably rich beneficiaries of God's plan of redemption, we are not at the center of everything. At the center was the love of the father for the son and the love of the son for the father. That doesn't mean the Father and the Son did not love us very much. John 3.16 clearly says, God so loved the world that all this happened. But what drove Jesus to the cross, even before it was his love for us, was his great love for his Father. His deep desire and commitment to do whatever he could to please his Father. 
I don't know if you've ever felt like that for your dad, but I can tell you we can and we're invited to. It's our privilege to feel that way for our Heavenly Father even now. It's one of the joys of being Christian is that we get to be giddy with anticipation over how happy God is going to be as we pour our lives out for him. And then a close second is that he knew the glory of what he was going to do would bring about the salvation of billions. Billions. First comes a love for his father. Then comes tremendous love for the world. That order matters. And one of the things he's praying for you and me today is that we would know this joy of just, I can't wait to make my heavenly father happy. Whatever it costs me, however much work it takes, if I could just see his smile of approval over me at what I've done for his sake, that joy allows us to bear any weight and any cost. That's a big part of the joy of being a Christian. And then comes the joy of seeing how God takes that obedience and touches the lives of many through what we do. I think we've often put the cart before the horse and we're so driven by a desire to touch people and then maybe to bless God afterwards. It's got to be the other way around. We are most reliably driven by a fierce love for God, which then leads us to a fierce love for people. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.